The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au So that's John chapter 6 from verses 1 to 21. Reading from verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountain mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up, looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed five or six kilometers, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they said, then they were terribly frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Oh, dear. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. They're much better. Uh, A couple things. First of all, thank you very much to the string quartet for that beautiful uh, rendition of It Is Well With My Soul. It's one of my favorite hymns. I I never can quite get through verse 3 without just pausing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It's well with my soul. So thank you very much for that. I, w- I wish I was hoping we could sing part of it. Then Edna remind me. Well, we did actually sing it last week, so that's okay. Uh, another thing about the string quartet: there is on the uh, 26th of November in the afternoon. There's a flyer we'll put up at the back here. Uh, Myra and Sunith play in the uh, Marunda Symphony Orchestra, and they're doing Mendelssohn's Oratio called Elijah. And there'll be a bunch of soloists and. Uh, some beautiful music, so if you would like to go to that, that'll be on November 26th. And I think, praise the Lord, we don't have anything conflicting in the afternoon. <laughs> That's, I think, the first time we've had a concert for them, but we've had something else on almost every time. So please go along and enjoy that. Take your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians and chapter 2. We're going to read together from... Verse 11 down to the end of verse 22. Just so you know, the plan for the, the uh, messages for the next little while is we're going to go through, we'll start chapter 3. And I was really hoping that we would finish chapter 3 by the end of November, but given uh, sickness and a few other things, we're just not going to be able to do that. 
But then for December, for the five weeks of December, we're going to focus on Luke chapter 1 and 2, and we'll look at the Christmas story. And uh, Sunith has put together a whole roster of carols, so we're going to sing lots of Christmas carols, and we'll look at the story of Jesus' birth for most of December. But we'll finish as far as we can in Ephesians 3 before uh, December comes around. From verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, the Word of God says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household." having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, we come again before you with the word of God open before us. And Father, it is our desire to hear your voice speak into our hearts that we would be rebuked and challenged and encouraged and built up in our faith. Father, we ask you that you would meet with us and speak to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Two armies, having two kings, have gone out to fight a great battle. The citizens of the cities of each of those two kings have huddled inside their city walls waiting news of the battle. This is back in the times of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. At last, from a distance, a runner comes and he's seen running toward the city. He reaches the city gates and the gates gates are closed and barred and whereupon he pounds on the gates. He steps back from the gates and he lifts up his voice. He looks up at the people on the wall and he begins to proclaim good news. The war is over. The victory is won. There is peace. The greater king has won the battle. The lesser king has been defeated. The victorious king now calls on his newly conquered subjects to declare their allegiance to him as king. Their Lord and their master. Allegiance to the victorious king will guarantee them food and wealth and peace and security. And all who declare allegiance and commit wholeheartedly to the king will be enrolled as soldiers in a new army, as servants in his house and members of his court. All who declare allegiance to the king will be richly rewarded when he comes shortly to review the city and its citizens. All that refuse to declare allegiance to the king will be considered his rebels and enemies against him and will face his wrath, judgment, and condemnation upon his arrival. And that is exactly what happened in the ancient Greek wars. That messenger, in case you hadn't figured out already, his name was called a Galen, one who came preaching peace and good news. He declared peace to the conquered subjects and called them to allegiance to the new conquering king. 
And the implication was a strong king had conquered. And because a great and a strong king had won the war and beaten the lesser king, because he was a great and strong king, there would be wealth and food and prosperity for all involved. And Jesus calls us messengers of the gospel. And you can almost see point by point down that list of things that's happened. It lines up almost perfectly with the gospel. Jesus Christ, the king, has conquered. He has been raised from the dead. He has defeated sin and death and hell and the grave. He is the new king. We know that Jesus has ascended up on high. He is now seated by beside his father. He is ruling and reigning on high. He has won the victory. And we also know that Jesus the King is returning again sometime soon. And those who have refused to declare allegiance to Him, those who have refused to trust Him and follow Him, will be judged and condemned and damned. That is the news of the Gospel. The good news and the bad news. And the great news that Jesus has won the victory. God's visible representation of His kingdom on earth is His church. And God is building His church. He is building it by declaring to the citizens of this world the good news of peace and calling the world's citizens to allegiance, to faith, and to submission as Him, to Him as King. Jesus said to Peter, one of his disciples, one day, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the question, of course, faces us, how is God building his church? Well, there are in the text before us, verses 17 to 22, four definite truths about how God is building his church. In verse 17, we see that God called us into the church by the preaching of the gospel of good news. In verse 18, we can see that God gave us access as His church into His presence through prayer. In verses 19 and 20, we can see that God gave us security in His church by placing us and setting us on Christ the foundation. And in verses 21 to 22, God is fitting us together into His temple, growing us into His temple. And I wanted to go through these four and examine them and see how God is building His church. But I also want us to see how God is using each of us in these four aspects to build the church. He's working through us to build His church. But He is ultimately the one that is doing the work. So first of all, God called us by His gospel. Number one, you have a note sheet in your Bible or in your uh, uh, bulletin there. You can follow along if you like. First of all, God called us by His gospel. We're called into God's church by the preaching of the gospel. If you notice the text in Ephesians 2 verse 17, the Bible says that He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now, you may not realize this, but that verse is actually a very cleverly rephrased verse from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 57 and verse 19, Isaiah says, I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. And he says, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Paul rephrased that. And he's interpreted to mean that those who are far away are the Gentiles and those who are near are the Jews. So Jesus came and he preached the gospel of peace to those who are far away and those who are near. Notice also in verse 17, he puts the Gentiles first and the Jews second. But we know that both Jews and Gentiles are far from God spiritually. The Jews had many blessings and many benefits from being Jews. They had the covenants and the laws and the temple and the sacrifice and all that system. In their great temple in Jerusalem, there were courts. The most innermost court is the Holy of Holies. And then you work your way out from there and you have the court of the Jews and then the court of the women. And then way out beyond that, further away, was the court of the Gentiles. So the peace is being preached to those who are far away the Gentiles, and those who are near. 
But the truth is still the same, that both Jew and Gentile needed to hear the preaching of the gospel of God's peace to them. Jew and Gentile need to hear the gospel of God's grace and God's peace. Notice the meaning of preached. It means to communicate good news, peace. Uh, as you all know, and the, and the Greek people in the, in the congregation love to hear me pronounce, or I should say mispronounce Greek words. I'm not Athanasius Bardas who can pronounce it fluently. But the euangelion, there's a whole series of words in the New Testament that work around that core. And they have the idea of good news, preacher of good news, communicator of good news. To preach the gospel simply means to communicate good news. Jesus, the Bible says here that he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. We know from the Gospels that Jesus often commended peace after he had worked a healing. For example, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 34, Jesus said to the woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. A great scene in the upper room. The disciples are all huddled inside. Jesus has been crucified three days earlier. They're hiding from the Romans. They don't know what to do. They're scared and they're afraid. And the Bible says that Jesus came through a locked door and stood in their midst. And this is what he did. He said, peace be unto you. He proclaimed, he declared to his disciples the peace of God. He won the victory. He defeated sin. He had defeated death. He had triumphed over it all. He was raised from the dead with power to declare that he is the son of God. And now he comes to his followers and says, peace. Peace has been won for you. We know also that after that he sent out his disciples and he, he told them to declare peace wherever they went to preach the gospel of peace. Notice he preached the peace to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus himself didn't specifically go to the Gentiles. In fact, he sent his disciples out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he told them after his resurrection that they would go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which we know is Australia. It's the far side. No, I'm kidding. It's all the way around the whole world. They had to go and preach the gospel. But we know from the book of Acts... The Bible says that Peter is recorded as speaking this. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Peter's talking to Cornelius and his friends. He's telling the Gentile nations that the declaration of peace to the Jews also goes to all of the Gentile peoples of the world. There's a great need to preach the gospel and teach the word of God. We're called into God's church through the preaching of the gospel of God's peace. We're raised and fitted and shaped through the preaching, excuse me, and teaching of the word of God. Listen, it's not skits and drama and entertainment that makes and grows disciples and builds the church. It is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God that shapes and makes disciples. Paul's great commission to Timothy is this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Notice the context. Jesus is coming back. He is going to judge this world. He is going to review all of mankind, believer and unbeliever. And in light of that, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Preach the word. That word means publicly herald, kind of like me with my voice bellowing out through those speakers, deafening you all. But you know what? Peter stood up on Pentecost morning and preached to thousands of people in Jerusalem. And the very same word is used over in chapter 8 and verse 35. And a man named Philip 
got up into the chariot beside Philip the Ethiopian. And the Bible says that beginning with this verse, he preached Jesus to him. He communicated and declared and proclaimed who Jesus was and is to that Ethiopian. It means this. It's not about numbers of audience. It's not about the power or the lack of power of your voice. It's about communicating a message. Whether you can get up like Whitfield. I have heroes, and George Whitfield's one of them. Apparently he could preach uh, out in the open air in the fields, and his voice could be distinctly heard five miles away across the fields. He had a tremendous voice. But whether you preach like Whitfield... Or you preach with a soft, small, gentle voice of a mother who lays out the scriptures and declares them to her children. It's communicating the message of the gospel. God is building his church through the preaching of his word. God called us into his church by the preaching of peace, of the gospel of peace to us. And he is working through us and in us to declare the message of the gospel to anybody who will listen, to call them in. I've been re- uh, reading a lot about discipleship the last couple of days, last week or so, and being really challenged by what it means to follow Christ. And one of the things that's come home to me again and again and again is discipleship is knowing the words of Jesus, seeing his lifestyle, imitating what he did, going as he went, suffering and dying, or be willing to suffer and die as he did to take his words of the gospel to the nations that do not know it. The church isn't built, folks, inside these four walls. It's built when men and women... Young men, old men, young women, old women go outside that door and reach out to their communities with the message of the gospel to tell people who do not know that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and to call them into allegiance to faith in Christ, to walk with him and live with him. God is building his church through the preaching of the word, number one. Number two, God gave us access through prayer. We have access as God's church into God's presence through prayer. Christ has purchased our peace. Our submission to his terms of peace changes our state. We're no longer rebels and enemies against God. Now we are saints. Now we are the sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. In Christ, as his body, the church, we have access to God. Notice the text, Ephesians 2, verse 18. It says this, For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Access means this. It means the right or privilege to address someone of a higher or greater state or position than ours. Who here has ever seen the picture of John F. Kennedy sitting in the president's office and there's this beautiful big wood desk and he's turning to one side and he's, you can see he's actually in the middle of clapping and his little kids, little uh, John Jr. and the other one, and they're sort of running around in a circle in the office. And it was well known in the White House that when he was in presidency there, his kids could come into the White House and they often find them playing in the knee hole underneath his desk. They had access because they were children of the most powerful man in the United States and they could come in and out and they could speak to him and commune with him and have fellowship with him as their father. And the most powerful man in the United States could turn around and play with his kids even though Cuban Missile Crisis and all that other stuff was going on. Listen, folks, we have access to God. We have access into His very presence. We, as God's church, have access into God's presence to speak with Him through prayer. It is Christ who brings us into God's presence. He has removed the enmity. He's removed the barrier, the veil that barred our view. For generations, thousands of years, the Jewish priests would go into the holy place and there in front of them was a great veil. And they would say, you know, behind that veil, there is an Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful gold-covered box with the cherubim up on top and inside the law. And the priest would say, oh, can I have a look? No, you may not look. 
Because even the high priest once a year and never without blood, by putting smoke in front of his face, by dumping incense on coals, and the smoke would billow up in front of his face so that, the Bible says, he could not see the presence of God hovering over the mercy seat. You know what? That veil has been torn away. And not only can we now see in, we can go in. We can have access to our Father. No longer is there required a human priest to intercede for us. No longer is there the requirement of a blood sacrifice. Christ is the means of our access. He is our mediator. By faith in God, we are free to enter in. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. He says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. That phrase, we have obtained our introduction, you could rephrase that perfectly legitimately by saying, we have obtained access. We can go in. We can come right into the presence of God as we pray. We close our eyes and we bow our heads and we can be right in the presence of the living God, lifting up our hearts in prayer to Him. The writer of the Hebrews said this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us, Through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let's draw near with a sincere heart, he says, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The sense here is not only into the presence of the king, but it's into the presence of our father. I don't know how you got along with your father, but I got along pretty good with mine. I can go in and see him fairly easily and fairly regularly. And I know some who had fathers that were a bit austere and a bit distant and a bit remote. And for them, the fatherhood of God is something they struggle to understand and grasp. But the truth is this, that God has given us access into his presence through prayer. And he is building his church through prayer. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a tremendous privilege to come before God without the interfering, intervening priests and blood and sacrifices. All of that has been done and finished and we can come into the very presence of God. We can commune with Him. We can worship through prayer. We can have fellowship with Him. We can seek forgiveness for sins that have been committed. We can have and seek, uh, sorry, we can give thanks for things that He has given us, the blessings that we enjoy. We can intercede on behalf of each other. And you know what else we can do? We can sit absolutely quietly in His presence. And with the Word of God open before us, we can say like Samuel, the little boy in his bed, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you ask any pastor or any church leader how their prayer life is, I have never heard one of them in writing or in videos ever say, yeah, it's good, my prayer life's great. They all say the same thing, my prayer life could always be better. And you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the most tremendous opportunity. We can speak to the Creator, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't have to make an appointment, catch a flight, two trains, and a bus stop to get there. I can simply close my eyes, driving down the road. Well, eyes open when you're driving. (laughs) Or you can, sitting in your house, in your chair, you can close your eyes and be face to face with the King of Kings. And God is building His church, brothers and sisters, through prayers of the saints as we pray for one another and pray for each other. We are reminded in Scripture the pastor's role is two things, prayer and the preaching and the ministry of the Word. Let me tell you this, for an absolute certainty, you will accomplish one thousands more after an hour of prayer than after thousands of hours and no prayer. It's prayer is the key. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to maybe poke a sore spot for a moment. There is a prayer meeting every Wednesday night over in that side room there. And I'll tell you, the times I come out of that prayer meeting wishing I'd stayed home are nil. There are lots of times when I'm on the way in thinking, oh, I'd rather just go home and, and, and relax. But I spend time in that room there, and you hear some of the saints pray. And it reduces your heart to tears because some of them have an intimate knowledge of God that is just amazing. Even listening to their prayers encourages and builds me up and builds others up to keep praying and carry on this race. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm urging you, if you can make it on Wednesday night, make a point of coming. I'll leave that one there. Did you notice Paul's display of the Trinity here? All three members of the Trinity are actually involved in our prayer. He says, through Christ, in one spirit, to the Father. We pray through Christ. He is the mediator. We pray in His name. Why is it we close off our prayers? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why do we say that? We say that because what it means is this. We're praying the things that God would like to give. We're praying for the things that we know that God wants us to ask for. So if I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, I need a new Harley Davidson with all the trimmings in Jesus' name, amen. Does that mean I'm going to get it? No, of course not. Because God knows I don't need a new Harley Davidson with all the trimmings. It's not needed. But when I stop and I look at Scripture and I see how Jesus prayed... And I see how the, the disciples prayed, especially Paul. And I see how the Old Testament saints prayed. Uh, Daniel's prayer, Nehemiah's prayer, David's prayers in the Psalms. You read those prayers and you get a full idea of just how it is we can pray. And when we pray those things that Scripture gives us as the key to pray, and we pray them in Jesus' name, we're asking for the very things that God wants to give us. We pray through Him. We pray in His name. We pray in one Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves us to pray. I can't tell you the number of times I've been doing something and I've had this incredible impression in my heart, not an audible voice, just a sense, I need to stop and pray. I need to stop what I'm doing. I need to put aside the study. I need to put aside whatever's in front of me and I need to pray. And God lays through the power of the Holy Spirit that impression in my heart that I need to stop and pray. And as I begin to pray, God begins to feed me the ideas. You need to pray for this. You need to pray for that. Sometimes he puts names in my mind. You need to pray for Poovan. He's overseas. He's doing that. You need to pray for Khan. You need to pray. And we follow that. We are allowing God to, to work through us and encourage us as we pray for each other. We also pray to the Father. He is the object and recipient of our prayers. Our prayers answered according to His riches and grace. In Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, the Bible says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Our breathing ought to be like prayer. No, I didn't get it backwards. I used to say, you know, our, our praying ought to be like our breathing. But you know, our breathing ought to be like our praying. How often do you breathe? Uh, if, you, if you're not breathing, you've got a problem. But most of us probably breathe, I think it's 60 or 70 breaths a minute. Something, I don't know, I have no idea. Hannah went like this. No, it's not that many, I guess. Maybe it's smaller. But you know what? Breathing is natural to us. We breathe in, we breathe out. We breathe in, we breathe out. It's just a natural, repetitive event. It's almost subconscious. Unless you're working out, then you're quite aware of how much you're breathing. But you know, our prayer ought to be as natural as breathing, as we're in communion with the living God, as our hearts have been charged up by the Scriptures as we read them, as the Scriptures as we memorize them and meditate them, and our living, our communion with God is as natural as breathing. We just are staying in a constant state of prayer before God. And when Paul says, pray without ceasing, I'm convinced that's what he means. 
Not, he's not on his knees with a list and, and all of these and thous. He's simply communing with God as he goes through his day. And the church of Philippi comes to mind, so he prays for them. And the church of Thessalonica comes to mind. Or Thessalonica comes to mind. He prays for them. And the church of Noble Park comes to mind. And we pray for each other as God lays it on our hearts. But God is building his church as his people pray. Thirdly, God gave us security. We have security in God's church on Christ our foundation. Notice what the scripture says in Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Notice there are four different statuses mentioned here. And all four statuses are listed in Greco-Roman city lists. So in the, in the records of the old cities of Greece and Rome, they would have lists of citizens and members and strangers and aliens. They'd know who was there and who was not. Okay, so the stranger number one, he is a short-term transient kind of person without any status, any rights, or any protection in the city. He's just passing through. No fixed address, coming in, coming out. Secondly, there's aliens there. Now, we have aliens in our, in the sense, in our culture and world, people who are illegally in the country. They're not there by rights. They're longer-term residents, and they have the same no status, no rights, and no protection. And then he says there are citizens. And here's where everything changes. These are long-term residents that have status in the city, they have rights in the city, and they are entitled to the protection of the city military, the guards and the, the police and so on. And then finally he says there are members. These are citizens with full membership in a household. Now, in the Greco-Roman times, a household just didn't just mean like Poovin and Kathy and the two girls. That would be considered a household. But if Poovin and Kathy had servants and a chauffeur and a butler and, and maids and cooks and all the rest of the things, and Kathy just started smiling, and, and they could say that's all part of Poovin's household. All those people were in his household. They had full protection and rights and status, and they would be considered Poovin's household. But here's the cool thing. We, having accepted God's terms of peace, we're having claimed obedience, submission, allegiance to Christ by faith. We are therefore no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer separated from Christ. We're no longer without hope, without God in the world. We are now fellow citizens with God's people in God's church. You know what that means? We are inter eternal residents in God's kingdom. We are eternal members of God's house. Who's your household? God. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Full membership. All the rights as members. What's that mean? I have the right to go into my Father's presence and speak to Him. I have the right to pray. I have the right to be a part of that church and work in that church and encourage members and be encouraged and occasionally be disciplined and all that sort of stuff that makes me part of that household. Being fellow citizens, Jews and Gentiles together have equal status in God's church. The Bible says in Philippians 3 verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior. Hey, we're not just here enjoying all of this for all of time. We're looking forward to Jesus coming back. Because that's just the beginning of the, well, the never-ending end, because it's eternity. We're looking forward to when Jesus comes back and deals with all of the sin situation in our world. We're longing for his return. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We are members of God's church, God's family, God's household. He is our heavenly father and we've been adopted in. Christ is our great brother and he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Listen, 
We have a new status. Fellow citizens, members, sons and daughters. But you know what? Not only that, there's more. Like those late night cheesy infomercials. But wait, there's even more. You know what that even more part is? In God's church is also security. We're absolutely secure as his sons and daughters, as his adopted sons and daughters. He who adopted us will never unadopt us. He who regenerated us, made us alive in Christ, will never unregenerate us, make us dead in sin again. We're absolutely secure. We're safe in his hands. The Bible says in John 10, this is Jesus' words, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Listen, we're safe Because God cannot lie or break his promises. We're safe because God will not allow us to be snatched away. People often think about eternal security in terms of me hanging on to Christ. No, other way around. Christ is holding on to me and I can't get away. Even if I wanted to, which I don't, obviously. But our security is absolutely full and rich because he holds us. But there's more to it than that. Notice what the verse says in Ephesians 2, verse 20. It says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, the word foundation, it literally means, it means that which keeps the walls stable, right? So when I used to build houses in, in Canada, we used uh, concrete with steel reinforcing on uh, for foundations. We didn't do the... You do here with the, the slab on gray and the little on the outside edge. It was it's pretty small and pretty simple. You have clay here in Canada where I lived. There was uh, mountains that so went straight up out of the sea, right up the very heights of the mountains, and it was all glacial withdrawal. So it was all this loose soil and great big giant boulders. And wherever you wanted to put a house, there was a giant boulder right in your way, and you had to go in there and blast it out of the way. But it was all loose soil. So what we do is we would dig down as deep as we possibly could go, down as almost a hard pan. Then we put these great big concrete and steel reinforced foundations in there that would go up. And coming up out of that, those foundation were bolts, and we would bolt the house to it. And what he would do is keep everything above it. It was all flat and level and straight and square, well, supposed to be anyway, and, and we would build a house on top of it. And that foundation kept the walls stable because if the foundation wall grew like this and the wall was put on top of it, it wasn't very stable. But the foundation wall's main job was to keep everything put on top of it absolutely stable and secure. It couldn't slide off the mountain. It couldn't collapse and corrode. Well, that's exactly what the word means here, is that Christ is our foundation. The apostles and prophets and Christ are the three parts of that foundation, and they keep whatever is built on top of it absolutely stable. Which is why Jesus said, build your life on a solid rock. And he didn't mean a boulder in the ground. He meant build your life on me. I am the foundation. You are Peter, he said, on this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are absolutely secure because Christ is building us on himself as the foundation. It's his work. He's the cornerstone. It's his person as, and his work as Savior and Lord. It's also the apostles that are attached to it. And you say, what does that mean? And you know, for years... Up until very recently, I thought when he said the apostles and prophets, he meant the writings of the New Testament and the writings of the Old Testament. But through a very long and complex Greek grammatical argument, which I only barely understood, it doesn't work that way. The word apostles and prophets there almost certainly speaks of New Testament men So you have the apostles, they're preachers and teachers that go out, they're commissioned specially by Christ to go out as apostles and preach the gospel and write the scriptures and record the truth of God explaining Christ. All of the epistles are there to explain what Christ has done. But the prophets are a different group of guys. 
They don't, they don't have the same authority as the apostles, but what they do is they take the message of the gospel and they go out and they preach it wherever they go. So the apostles, their role is more of a writing, teaching role, and the prophets, is their role is more of a preaching role. So we are secure on the foundation, which is Christ's person and work, the apostles' explanation of his work, and the prophets, if you like, his, the preaching of his work. So as long as we study the scriptures and know Christ, know what he did, study the apostles' writings to understand what he did, and listen to the preaching of the gospel, we're secure. We're set on that foundation, okay? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you are God's field and God's building. All of these illustrations drive home the great truth that we are secure as Christ's church. We're secure as God's work in building. We're secure as God's family, his adopted children. But our security does not rely on us holding on to him. Like I said before, our security is sure because he holds on to us. Just as surely as we bolted the house to the foundation, and the foundation, in a sense, held onto the house, in my building experience, so also Christ hangs on to us. We, God put us on the foundation of Christ, and Christ, if you like, reaches up and grabs a hold of us and says, you're safe, you're secure, you're not going anywhere. That's a beautiful thought. And what do we do with that? You know what? I've heard about people... We even met some of them and talked to them at length who believe you can lose your salvation. And I actually went away just grieving for them. What a terrible situation to be in to think that one day I might be absolutely secure, have a home in heaven, and the next day, whoop, I've lost it. And they spent their whole lives running around trying to figure out how it is they could hang on to God so securely that they couldn't lose their salvation. And I kept trying to explain to them, listen, it's not that you're holding on to God, but God is holding on to you. And you're secure because you are in his grasp. And that means we can live resting and rejoicing in that great fact. He purchased our, us on the cross. He proclaimed peace to us. It was He who adopted us. It was He who changed our status from saints, or sorry, from sinners to saints and members of His household. It was He. It was God who set us on the foundation. He has us in His grasp, and nothing will pry us loose from Him. In Christ, God's church is secure. In Christ, God is building His house, and nothing will prevail against it. Listen, they may take our wealth, they may take our goods and our possessions, they may torture our bodies and kill us. We know that for a fact as you look in the Middle East and what's happening over there. But listen, they can never, ever pry us out of God's hands. Whatever challenges you're facing, and I know some of you are facing some serious difficulties in life, Whatever challenge you're facing, never ever for a moment think that that challenge can drag you away, can pull you off the foundation. You are absolutely secure in Him. Fourthly, the last one, God is fitting us together. We're being fitted together as God's church into His temple. Notice the Word of God, Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. The Bible says this, In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul says we are being fitted together. The question is, How? How is God fitting each of us to the other one? You see some clues from other scriptures. So I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to you. Just listen. The list is in the, the note sheet there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read it already. It says that we are God's field and God's building. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. You're here... Not just because you come here each Sunday. You're here in this body because God has placed you here for His purposes and His reasons. I'm absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that I am where I am supposed to be in fellowshipping in this church. 
God has put you here. God has put me here for his purposes. You might be thinking, Nasan, we can't stand you. That's good because God has put me here to help you get used to difficult people. That's possible. You might be thinking, but I can't stand the guy on the other side of the room. Maybe God put that person in this room so that you can learn patience and perseverance. Listen, God has assembled this church. He has put each of us in this church for His purposes and His reason. He does it by His sovereign desires and His love for us to shape us into the people He wants us to be. Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and verse 7, the Bible says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Ephesians 4, 14 to 16, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So how are we being fitted together to grow into a temple? Well, from those texts, I want to give you a number of biblical truths. Number one, we're God's building. This church, I don't mean these walls, and this whole building could blow up. The church won't change. You and I, sitting in these chairs, we are the church. This is just a building. It's a shell. That's all. God's building, we are. We, he purchased us with Christ's blood, and he, we are possessed by him as his temple. Okay, remember that. Number two, God is placing us in the body wherever He desires. And God may choose to move you somewhere else in your life for His own reasons and purposes. Go with that. But until God very clearly moves you out, stay. Because God wants to work through you in each of our lives to shape us and make us more like Christ. Thirdly, God is the master builder and we are his creation and building. Fourthly, God causes the growth. And speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him. And as we grow, each part, each member of God's household supplies part of the strength that ties us together as one. Okay? Remember the verse in Ephesians 4? Being fitted together, fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Meaning what? If I did it for an illustration, we all stand up and everybody link arms. Right? You know, all around the whole room, all link arms. And we start to pull each other apart. Well, if I link arms with Hannah and someone pulls on Hannah and someone pulls on me, each of us supplies half of the strength that keeps us together. You say, what has all this got to do with the church? This is what it is. God is using you in my life and me in your life and you in each other's lives. And as you work together, as you speak scripture into each other's lives, as you pray for each other, as you reach out and in practically love one another, each of us loving the other one, that strengthens the bond between us. I want you to imagine like big boulders. I think I used this illustration before, but it's the best way to know how to describe it. Big rounded boulders. And you slide them together, and what you have is a round shape like this. And there's, there's hollow spaces above and below. And speaking Scripture in each other's life, God uses Sophie to speak Scripture in my life. And when she does, God takes and knocks a bump off me. And I speak Scripture into Hannah's life, and Hannah gets a bump knocked off of her. And Porchek into Ian, and Con into George, and Chris into Poovin. And every time we start speaking Scripture back and forth into each other's lives, ministering to one another, it doesn't matter your ability, it's your desire to minister to one another. God takes and knocks bumps and lumps off each other and he begins to bring us closer and closer and closer and closer together. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, listen, sometimes the rock is very hard. And sometimes God brings a sledgehammer in and it's got to hit a hard bump off of you 
Why? Because he wants to hurt you? No. He wants to bring you closer and closer and closer. You see, the closer we are to each other, working together, loving each other, speaking Scripture into each other's lives, training each other as disciples, then we can reach out as a community and start bringing others and drawing others in. But listen, God is fitting us together. But I love the fact that God doesn't do it through some supernatural thing. It is supernatural, but He does it through you and me. He does it when we pray for each other. He does it when we speak Scripture, share a text of Scripture with each other. He does it as through the preaching of the Word. He does it as we share Bible studies. He does it in the KYB study, and the ladies share Scripture and work alongside of each other to understand the Scripture and build each other up. He does it in the youth Bible study and the youth studies and the couple study at Poovin's house. He does it in all those arenas. Just to jump ahead to the QBM in a couple of weeks, I want to see those arenas grow. More arenas where we can speak scripture into each other's lives and we can be fitting each other, making each other more like Christ. I share a verse with Poovin. It's not my desire to knock him down or to hurt him or poke at his sore spots. It's my desire to see that verse used by God to shape him, to build him up. And sometimes building him up requires knocking a bit off. God is building his church as he uses each of us to work on the other. And God is working through us. And when I say God puts difficult people in churches to teach us patience, I'm not joking or exaggerating. But here's the thing. Every single one of us in this church is at a different stage in their walk with Christ. And every one of us understands Scripture a little bit differently. I don't mean different interpretation. I mean different levels of understanding. Some of us are very, very basic. We know the very basic that Jesus loved me and died for me, and I believe in him and I'm saved. Praise God. Some of us have talked to Wes about theology. He has a degree in systematic theology. He can wrap circles around me and his understanding of theology. He has a greater level, a higher level. There's a whole bunch of levels in between. You know what the beautiful thing is? He doesn't know everything. He's still learning. I'm still learning. You're all still learning and still growing as believers in Christ. And we all need each other to feed Scripture in. And you know what? I can learn something from the most simple new believer who just says to me that Jesus loved me and died for me. And he breaks down in tears and the Lord teaches me something through that moment. The moment we think we're too smart to learn a thing, we are dumber than you can imagine. Brothers and sisters, God is building his church. He's building it through the preaching of the gospel. He's building it through prayer. He's building it absolutely secure on Christ, the foundation. And he is building it through working through each of us, ministering scripture into each other's lives to build each other up in our faith that we might get on with the real job, which is getting out there to make more disciples and increase. Does that make sense? All right. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. On the back side of that little sheet there, there is some practical suggestions about how you can put together the message and, uh, and use it. We're going to pray, then we'll sing the benediction. Loving Father, we come before you, and, and Lord, even as I begin to pray, the words of that hymn just float back into my mind. My, the, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Father, thank you so much for the fact that Christ has purchased us with his blood. Father, thank you that you have brought somebody into each of our lives who was willing to be difficult and willing to be confronting and share with us the gospel. 
Father, I praise God for Larry Reimer this morning, who sat down with a young boy at camp and shared the gospel with him. Father, thank you for the way in which you have worked in each of our lives to awaken in us faith and repentance. Father, I plead with you that you would make us into a church of disciples making more disciples. Father, you would make us into a church that is a group of people who love each other and want to see each other grow in their faith and their understanding of Scripture, who are willing to speak Scripture into each other's lives. Father, I plead with you that you would turn us into a praying church, meeting together, praying together, twos and threes and groups and whole church together. Father, I am convinced that when Jesus went out and spent the entire night in prayer, that he was setting an example for us that prayer must be the great priority. Father, I'm also convinced by the way in which he used Scripture to train his disciples, even speaking Scripture and then using it to train them, that we are to use Scripture to speak into each other's lives to confront each other lovingly and gently. Father, to minister to each other, applying a soothing balm of Scripture to each other when it's needed. Father God, I cry out to you this this morning that you would take this church, take us all, O God, and use us in each other's lives. Use us to reach outside these four walls with the gospel to see others come to know Jesus as well. Father, I cry out again to you for revival. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.